Please pray with me. Father, as we come to read your word and to hear your word, we pray that your spirit might apply the living word to our hearts. We pray again that you would allow your word to strike root in us so that we might grow to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. Father, please teach us now, for we long to know you better and to love you more. And we pray in your son's precious name. Amen. So did you ever think that you would go through life unchallenged and unscathed? Perhaps as a child you may have thought so for a little while, but there was enough evidence there then for you to realise that this world couldn't give us all that we need or wanted. I wonder when you committed yourself to follow Jesus if you thought that the challenges would be less, the wounds would be less frequent and less deep. Do you think that anyone is above a life of hard knocks, loss, dissatisfaction and suffering? Will any strategy for living exempt us from disappointment? Peter is a realist. He has experienced the highs and lows of following Jesus. And as we saw last week, he's aware that any strategy for living needs to take into account the two constants of this life, good and evil. In this section that we're about to look at this evening, he continues to give us guidelines on how to be consistent in turning from evil to good and how to live this life well by setting the example of Christ before us. So let's have a look now at page 1890. So 1 Peter 3 from verse 13 to to chapter 4 verse 6. 1 Peter chapter 3 from verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who had been disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. It is only a few, eight in all, that were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who has, has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Did you notice the continuity? The continuity with the recurring themes that we've been looking at. Turning away from evil and doing good. uh, Being ready, being prepared. Uh, The whole idea of showing reverence to God that we've looked at in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. Did you notice the continuity? Or were you thrown off track by the dissonance, the lack of harmony, the jarring notes in verses 19 to 22 and in chapter 6, verse 6 of chapter 4, preaching to imprisoned spirits. Noah and baptism. These are notoriously hard to pin down even after 20 centuries of debate. And we can have a problem if we narrow our focus too much so that we're distracted by the continuing argument, the important message that is here for us. So I'm going to try and minimise the distraction and just briefly deal with this in a pretty superficial way. If you're super interested, you can ask questions later. If you're super, super interested, you can do it at Growth Group. Uh, If you're still interested, you've got the rest of your life to try and sort it out. There are still plenty of avenues for PhDs in this area. One key element in interpreting the Bible well is using what is clear to interpret what is unclear. Look with me at verse 18. It is clear. It is clear. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. He suffered, he died, his crucifixion. He was made alive, his resurrection. If we jump to verse 22, which is also clear... Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Jesus is now at God's right hand with all authorities, all powers subject to him. 
So whatever else is going on here, Peter wants to encourage his readers who are likely to suffer unjust treatment from human authorities that Jesus is sovereign over all authorities, human and spiritual. All authorities are subject to him and he and will be judged by him, the judge of the living and the dead. In Jesus, God's victory over all authorities has been announced. And this is a message of assurance. This is a message of assurance. That bad, that evil, does not win in the end. There will be judgment. There will be a day when all wrongs are put right. Last week we saw that the centrepiece of Peter's strategy for living is the example of Jesus. In response to unjust accusations, like Jesus, they are not to retaliate. Rather, their consistent turning from evil to do good lets his light shine through them. Their good deeds will be seen as a positive by some and God will be glorified. They will be declaring God's praise through their actions. So if you can turn back one page and have a look at chapter 2 verse 12, this is what we also read last week. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. So there's this sense of the way to respond to the world is by doing good. But it appears in tonight's reading that the believers also have to respond to not just minor accusations, false accusations, but to hostility. And again here in chapter 3, there are practical guidelines given and it's undergirded again by the, the example of Jesus. So despite difficulties that may arise in the workplace and in families that we looked at briefly last week, the Christian is going to make a difference simply by doing good, by living a good life. But that's not the full picture. From personal experience, Peter was fully aware of hostility, of rejection, of persecution and imprisonment. We only have to look at Acts chapter 3 and 4 for that. So how are they to respond to hostility? How are we to respond? Well, firstly, we need to remember that we are blessed. That we are blessed. Remember this true grace of God that Peter is describing throughout his epistle. Remember we are precious to God. Remember that God is wedded to us. We need to remember that we are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We are God's special possession. We need to remember that we have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
we need to remember that we are shielded by God's power. That we have an inheritance that is also protected and so can never perish, spoil or fade. We are receiving the salvation of our souls. We are holy in God's sight and being made holy. We have faith and hope in God. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. In short, we have grace and peace in abundance. Because we're all forgetful, we need to be reminding each other and reminding ourselves that we are blessed. You are blessed. Together we are blessed. And please note here that in verse 14, in their suffering for doing right, they are blessed. Even if you suffer, should suffer, for what is right, you are blessed. Suffering doesn't cast doubt on their status as believers. For both Jesus and Peter, it has the effect of providing greater assurance. If you are suffering for the name of Jesus, take heart because you are identifying closely with your Lord. Perhaps Peter's head is still filled with the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We need to daily remember just how blessed we are. How should we respond? Remember that we are blessed. We should also remember to revere Christ as Lord. Verses 14 and 15. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is a quote quote from Isaiah 8.12. And Peter could have easily continued on by looking at verse 13. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. We're encouraged to honour Christ, to revere Christ, to hold him in reverent awe. That's appropriate because of his holiness, his glory, his grace that he's displayed to us. He is the Lord. Not the emperor in Rome. Not the Turkish authorities that are threatening them. He is Lord. Revere him as Lord. It's appropriate. It's not appropriate to fear these people. Because Christ is above all authorities. We are urged to recognise Christ's lordship over all. Every creature, every power, seen and unseen, and his lordship over all circumstances. Remember you are blessed. Remember to revere Christ as Lord. How should we respond? We should also be prepared to give an answer. 
We are to give an account of the hope that is ours. That is, we should be prepared to speak openly and candidly about our glorious salvation and our inheritance. In other words, we should be overflowing with a list of blessings that we have. What do you say to people? Tell them how, how you are loved. Tell them what Jesus has done. Tell them how you are blessed by him. And we need to be ready for this in contrast to Peter's unpreparedness on the night of Jesus' arrest where he denied we need to be ready. He doesn't want us to go through what he went through. The good works that have drawn these Christians to the attention of those who oppose them are to be explained. So both their words and their actions, and both our words and and our actions, are to go together declaring God's praise. And of course any answer that we give needs to reflect the character of Jesus, the pattern of Jesus. Our response should be with gentleness and respect or with humility and respect as opposed to arrogance and aggression. The manner of our response should not alienate hearers from the gospel. We've changed a lot in society since then in some ways. We communicate differently. Uh, a, A lot less of our communication is personal face to face. And I think there's a strong argument that can be mounted that we have these conversations, that we tell people of our faith face to face rather than on Facebook or Twitter by email. Gentleness and respect and humility are far more powerful in person. Our words and our actions go together to declare God's praise. I wonder if you've thought through lately what you might say to the person in the office or the person who just comes up to you and asks, why do you believe this stuff? Why do you go to church? Why do you do what you do? What reasons would you give for the hope that is in you? I hope that part of the reasons that you would give would be the many blessings that Peter has recounted and continues to tell us about as we go through his letter. Here in chapter 3, the focus is an attack on our beliefs. But if we jump to chapter 4 and perhaps have a look at verses 3 and 4, the opposition is more subtle but equally dangerous. It is an attack on Christian behaviour. Why don't you join in? Why don't you join in with us? For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. 
They are surprised that you do not join in their reckless wild living and they heap abuse on you. Peter's picture of Gentile society in the first century is a remarkably accurate description of 21st century Western society. Their behaviour is characterised by sensuality and passions which surface with a heady mix of alcohol, sex and pleasure. But he also mentions detestable idolatry. Any practice, any practice that diverts our attention away from revering Christ is misplaced worship. Any behaviour that does not honour Jesus as Lord is misplaced worship, which is idolatry. The pressures for them and the pressures for us can still be great. This social pressure to conform, uh, combined with the inward pressure that we have uh, to live life keeping a clear conscience, that inward battle for our heart's allegiance, for our soul. Add to this verbal abuse for not joining in. How do we handle that? Peter wants them and us to arm ourselves with the same attitude as Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body has finished with sin. We are to follow Christ's example, his pattern, seeking God's will not retaliating, giving a gentle reasoned response, avoiding evil, doing good. And we have to do that in his strength, by his grace. The sufferings which come from a refusal to join in are evidence of a desire to be finished with, to be done with sin. Desiring to be done with sin is not the same as never sinning. Desiring to put sin aside is not a call to live a sinless life. Rather, it is a call to a daily repentance. Remember the daily repentance that we spoke about last week. The battle for our heart's allegiance is a daily one. So each day we need to remember that we are blessed, that we are greatly blessed. Each day we need to fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can revere him as Lord. Each day we need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Each day we need to seek to model Jesus' gentleness and humility. Each day we need to turn from evil and do good. Each day we need to turn to God afresh for his help because we cannot do this in our own strength. We need his grace daily. We need to turn to God daily so that we receive his grace daily 
and become more aware of his grace daily and so are more able to praise him for the blessings of that grace. The pattern of Jesus is enormously important. He suffered and was put to death in the flesh in a decision which was a judgment made by the Romans of that day. Yet three days later he was made alive in the spirit so that he could live in the presence of God at his right hand, which was a judgment of God. Similarly for the believers, suffering and death will be followed by resurrection and judgment. Peter encourages us to consider our future beyond the grave. So not only to focus on our inheritance, not only to focus on our resurrected bodies, and not only to focus on the revealing of Jesus, but also on the judgment here. Yes, there will be a judgment day when all wrongs are put right. Chapter 4, verse 5, all people will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For some, it will be a horrific day. It will be horrific. It will be a horrid realisation that they have blinded themselves to the truth. That they are accountable for choosing another way, not the way, the truth and the life. But for others like me, it will be slowly raising my eyes to look into my judge's face, knowing that I don't measure up, knowing that it would be right to be declared guilty. But as my eyes look into my judge's face, they will see my saviour's face there. Those like me will be filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for they are receiving the end result of their faith, the salvation of their souls. If you trust and follow Jesus, you will confidently look into your judge's face and see your saviour there. No one gets through life unscathed. But your wounds won't be worth mentioning when you see Jesus face to face. Your wounds won't be worth mentioning when you fall into his embrace. We can take great confidence in Christ for his death and resurrection, for his ascension, for his reign at God's right hand. And for the fact that on the day of judgment, if we have trusted him, he will welcome us into his eternal kingdom. Our confidence is in Christ. Please pray with me. Father, thank you.
for your son, for the pattern of his living and dying and rising. Thank you for his resurrection body that that assures us of a resurrection body. And, And thank you for your promises that those who entrust themselves to you, the one who judges justly, will never be disappointed. Thank you for that day when we will stare into the face of your son and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, thank you that we don't go through life unscathed. Thank you for the wounds and the sufferings that we have experienced. Thank you that they give us a greater understanding of who you are and the vast expanse of your love for us. Thank you again that you are wedded to us and that we are your treasured possession. We give you all praise, glory and honour in your son's holy name. Amen.